there are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Welcome to NTD and good morning. Good morning, here are our top stories. A second hostage found dead in near Gaza's largest hospital and videos of what the IDF uncovered so far while searching the complex. Hamas says the terrorist group is willing to release tens of hostages in exchange for a short-term truce and prisoners. Would Israel take the deal? A security analyst weighs in. A Palestinian-led movement is gaining traction on college campuses as issues of anti-Semitism are on the rise across the country. Republican Congressman George Santos is not seeking re-election next year. That's after a new report asserts there is overwhelming evidence showing he broke the law. The costs of illegal immigration hitting New York City hard. Mayor Eric Adams calls the budget cuts to police, education and more the most painful exercise of his professional life. Online retail giant Amazon is pushing its way into the auto sales market in a new partnership with a South Korean automaker. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome for me as well. Today is Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. November 17th. Yes, happy Friday. Hope you all have a good weekend. And first, our hearts go out to the families of the hostages who have been found. That is true. Um, well, let's hope that all the remaining hostages will be uh, recovered and brought home safely. But also, I think uh, we will hear some more updates about the negotiations today. But first, in our top news is Israel says the body of a second Israeli, just as we have mentioned, was found near Al Shifa Hospital. She's been identified as 19-year-old Noah Marciano, a corporal in the Israel Defense Forces. Israel's military says her body has been transferred to Israeli territory. The IDF said yesterday it had found the body of a 65-year-old Israeli woman who was kidnapped. The IDF has released a new video to back up its claim that Hamas used Gaza's largest hospital as a command center. Here's a story. A Hamas tunnel below Gaza's largest hospital. Nearly 48 hours after Israeli forces raided Al-Shifa hospital, these are the first images of what the Israeli military says is an operational tunnel shaft on the grounds of the hospital complex. It is here in Shifa hospital where Hamas operates some of its command and control cells. For weeks, Israeli officials have laid the groundwork for an operation targeting Shifa Hospital, claiming Hamas operates a massive underground complex below it. 
And in recent days, the U.S. has also backed up those allegations. One thing has been established is that Hamas does have headquarters, weapons, materiel below this hospital. As Israeli special forces continue searching the hospital complex, they are also uncovering weapons and ammunition. There is a, an AK-47, there are cartridges, am ammo, uh, there are uh, grenades in here. Which the Israeli military calls concrete evidence that Hamas used Gaza's largest hospital to wage war. Near the hospital, Israeli officials also say they found the body of 65-year-old Yehudit Feis, who was among those abducted on October 7th. The body of Yehudit, may her soul rest in peace, was recovered by our forces. The 7th Brigade, which was scanning the area nearby the Al-Shifa hospital, recovered her body in one of the homes during the scanning. Near her body, we found bodies of terrorists who were holding Yehudit. Israel's decision to send troops into a hospital has drawn fierce criticism, with the UN's aid chief saying he is appalled by the raid. President Biden standing by Israel's actions. It's not like they're rushing in the hospital, knocking down doors and, you know, pulling people aside and shooting people indiscriminately. Amid the fighting, the families of hostages held by Hamas ramping up the pressure. This whole huge march of families up to Jerusalem comes to make a very clear stand to our government that they need to take any deal that they have and pay any price uh, for these people, for their citizens, pretty much. As negotiations drag on over a deal that could see Hamas free dozens of women and children in exchange for a multi-day ceasefire. This is my sister-in-law and this is my niece. She's 12 years old. Their families are racked with anxiety. It's been nerve-wracking, to tell you the truth, because, again, we don't know who to believe. We are trying to kind of scrape the last remnants of uh, faith and trust in our government that uh, when a relevant deal comes to the table, they will take it. For now, they march and wait. Talks of freeing some of the roughly 240 hostages are reportedly in the works. That's according to an Arab diplomat and other anonymous sources familiar with negotiations. Hamas is demanding a multi-day ceasefire, more humanitarian aid and freedom for an unknown number of Palestinians, many of whom were jailed for terrorism. The terrorist group reportedly agreed to a deal to release at least 50 women and children held in Gaza. Israel would have to agree to a three to five day pause in fighting to free them. Prime Minister Netanyahu said earlier this week that any information about a deal would be made public if and when concrete developments are made. Netanyahu said yesterday that the military found strong indications Hamas was holding hostages at Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, but he said if they were, they were taken out before the army arrived. Netanyahu says Israel has intelligence about the hostages, but that the less he says about it, the better. And now to discuss the potential deal to release hostages held by Hamas terrorists, we speak to David Wormser, a senior analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. David, thank you for making the time today. Is Israel interested in accepting this deal under those terms? Well, I think Israel is, is greatly tempted by this deal. It's got a lot of pressures right now in various directions. Obviously, the biggest is the uh, hostage families and as well as just every Israeli is horrified by the hostages. So the pressure to give in, to do anything, to bring back 
a large number of hostages is, is there, but at the same time, there's tremendous pressures in the other direction uh, in terms of the military pace of the, uh, the, the, the other side is basically arguing the best thing you can do is win quickly, and that will free the hostages as well. So, so there's really pressures in both ways, but Israel is clearly tempted. Yeah, that is an imperative goal, bringing those hostages home safely. So what challenges does a five-day truce cause for Israel's stated goal of eradicating Hamas? Well, the biggest one is uh, the uh, military side, which is that right now the Israelis have had relentless pressure on Hamas, and they're seeing every sign that Hamas is beginning to crack and break. And in military affairs, if you, if you stop, in the middle of uh, what is an impending victory, you give the other side a chance to regroup, get its sea legs back, and, and come back at you, as well as uh, do some horrible things like take more hostages. Every truce that Israel's ever had with Hamas in the past has ended with an attempt to take Israeli soldiers host further Israeli soldiers hostage, successfully at times. So the Israelis are terrified that more hostages would be taken. Number one and number two, it would give Hamas a chance to regroup and regain some of its footing. And then third, the pressures internationally not to restart the war uh, would, would, be, would grow immensely once the guns stop. And then Israel would find a, wind up essentially losing the war uh, with, another, with still another 150 hostages or so in control of Hamas. So there's a lot of pressures in the other direction, heavy pressures in the other direction of not doing a ceasefire as well. Thanks for some of that historical context surrounding this. Is this deal one of the only paths to ensuring the safe return of hostages, given the difficulty of rescuing them by force? Well, I, 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 I'm not sure it is a way to free all the hostages. I think the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the terrorist organization, Hamas, will hold a very substantial number of them all along because it wants it's their guarantee of survival and, and victory. So they won't give them all up. So this is maybe a path for 50 of them. It's not the only path. The other way is, of course, if Israel wins and takes the entire territory, and then there's other things that the Israelis wouldn't be thinking of uh, that in a Middle Eastern sense would be done, but I don't, I don't believe the Israelis would think of them like a much more aggressive killing of families of terrorist leaders and nation, but the Israelis don't do those things. So it's not going to be, that's not an option for them. So yeah, I think there's two options, either full victory and freeing the hostages that are alive or making a deal to get back at this point, what looks to be less than a quarter, maybe a fifth of the hostages. Yes, David, analysts have said that Hamas uses terrorists, or the terrorist group uses these hostages as bargaining chips. If the deal does go through, what are the next steps to free the rest of the hostages that are in Hamas captivity? Well, at that point, I think you'd see the pressure for uh, a much per more permanent ceasefire, and the price would go up dramatically for the Israelis, that with each batch, Hamas has fewer hostages left. They would still have, if the, what we're hearing about the parameters of the deal are true, they would still have somewhere between 200 to 150 hostages left now. They will raise the price a week, uh, two weeks uh, ceasefire, permanent ceasefire. Uh, every Israeli, every uh, security prisoner that Israel has from every uh, Palestinian terrorist organization, et cetera, et cetera. And the Israelis would never get there, but they would get toward a, a permanent ceasefire. 
which at this point one has to remember would constitute a defeat of Israel, especially in regional terms. Israel would then look weak, and that would guarantee a, perma, a, a much greater uh, deterioration of Israel's security position and a guarantee of further war, as well as the problem of the north, where the same thing can happen in, north, in northern Israel with Hezbollah in a year, and that is unresolved. So this war, Israel has fundamental objectives for its viability as a state in the region that can't be met if it stops now. But the pressures would grow immensely to stop with each pause. Israel certainly has some difficult decisions to make. Thank you for bringing clarity to this. David Wormser, Senior Analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Thank you. The Israeli military captured a Hamas-operated harbor in Gaza yesterday and bombed a Hamas meeting place. As Israeli forces make gains in the northern part of Gaza, they're preparing for the next phase of ground operations. In the last day, we completed the takeover and clearing of the entire western part of Gaza City. The next phase has begun. We have started the next phase. There are signals that Israel's ground operation is about to expand in the south. Palestinians in parts of southern Gaza said they received evacuation notices Thursday. As Israel prepares for the next phase of the campaign, Gaza is now cut off from the outside world. The territory's telecom provider said all communication services are down across the Gaza Strip due to lack of fuel. And coming up, President Biden signed the stopgap spending bill yesterday to avert a government shutdown. Republican Congressman George Santos is not seeking re-election next year. Find out more about the new House ethics report on the embattled congressman. The number of New York police to drop to lowest level since the 80s. Education slashed by a billion dollars. Mayor Eric Adams' tough budget cuts driven by the illegal immigration crisis. That's after the break. Good to have you back. The federal government will remain open after Friday. The White House says President Biden signed a stopgap funding bill. The move comes after intense bargaining and voting in the House and Senate. House Speaker Mike Johnson produced the stopgap funding bill that drew bipartisan support. Democrats said they were happy it stuck to spending levels that had been set in an agreement with President Biden. They were also happy it didn't include provisions on abortion or other contentious issues. The Senate's 87 to 11 vote on Wednesday marked the end of this year's third fiscal standoff in Congress. The bill provides tiered funding through January 19th and February 2nd. That means without a deal, the shutdown clock will resume in the new year. New York Republican Congressman George Santos announced yesterday night that he will not seek re-election to the House next year. That's after a scathing report from the House Ethics Committee. It says there is overwhelming evidence that Santos broke the law. It concluded that he cannot be trusted. This as Santos is facing a 23-count federal indictment. Entity's Melina Weiskup has more on what the report found. 
After a month-long investigation, the Bipartisan Ethics Committee finds that Republican Congressman George Santos knowingly violated a number of ethics and criminal statutes. Many of those crimes that are referred to in this report are actually the same crimes that he's facing a total of 23 federal charges for right now. The report reads Representative Santos sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal profit, accusing him of using campaign funds and his personal affairs and lying about his background to win over donors and constituents. The evidence consists of more than 170,000 pages of documents and testimonies from dozens of witnesses. The committee is now referring this evidence to the Department of Justice and Santos has responded to this report, calling it a politicized smear. He also says he's committed to finishing out this term, but he will not run for re-election next term. Meanwhile, some of his House colleagues, even Republicans, are eager to boot him out. Many Republicans are calling on him to resign, and there is an effort underway right now to hold another expulsion vote to get him out of Congress. They did try to do this in the past in the House of Representatives. However, there were some Republicans who protected him from being expelled on the grounds that this report had not yet been released. Now that it has has been released. We'll see if this next vote of expulsion turns out any differently. That vote could happen as soon as the House returns from their Thanksgiving break. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. There are concerns about the abuse of private data. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan has subpoenaed Bank of America for information about whether they shared such customer data with the FBI. Specifically, the transactions of those in D.C. on the day of the 2021 Capitol breach. The committee is investigating whether proper legal procedures were followed. Whistleblowers claim Bank of America shared information about customers who made transactions in the Washington area on or near January 6th, including those who bought firearms using Bank of America accounts. Bank of America argues they followed applicable laws, adding that it cooperated with the government's urgent efforts to deal with possible criminal activity around the presidential inauguration. And the Supreme Court has ruled a Florida law that limits drag shows in the state shall remain blocked. The decision yesterday denied the state's efforts to keep the new law in effect while it plays out in the courts. The Protection of Children Act was designed to prevent the exposure of children to sexually explicit live performances. It's widely understood to refer to drag shows. The 2023 law makes it a misdemeanor, I should say, to knowingly admit a child to such a show. The high court's order means that state officials cannot enforce the law at all until the legal challenge is resolved. A spokesman for Governor Ron DeSantis said the Supreme Court did not rule on the law's merits and that he expects the law to be upheld. Quality of life taking a hit. Mayor Eric Adams says New York's illegal immigrant crisis has forced the city to slash school, police and library budgets. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the move critics are calling dangerous. Speaking at a town hall event, Adams said that over 140,000 illegal immigrants have come to the city so far and that New York is out of room. People say, well, Eric, why don't you close the door? Why don't you stop allowing people to come in? I can't. That's against the law. New York has been a sanctuary city since the 1980s. That's a city that limits or refuses to cooperate with the national government on immigration law enforcement. I believe New Yorkers believe in plain talk and honesty. We're in, we're in some serious financial trouble right now. 
According to the mayor, the federal government should be picking up the multi-billion dollar tab from the illegal immigrant influx. Should not be coming out of the backs of everyday New Yorkers. That is wrong and that is what is happening. The mayor says every agency in the city will be hit by the cuts. I got to be honest about that. I'm not going to give any false impressions. This is the most painful exercise I've ever done in my professional life. Officials estimate the budget cuts will take 4,000 police off the streets over the next two years, a move surely to anger residents like this woman already feeling overwhelmed by crime. There is a huge problem with drug sales, drug trafficking, and shootings, especially in the evenings and on the weekends. There are mentally ill drug users that are surrounding these neighborhoods, menacing the people on the blocks outside and attempting to get into the apartment buildings. The New York Times reports that the Education Department budget will take a billion dollar hit over two years and two popular programs, Universal Pre-Kindergarten and Summer School, will be hobbled. Libraries say they will have to shut down on Sundays due to the budget slashing. New York City Council Speaker Adrian Adams says the cuts are blunt and careless. She called out the administration for providing services for the illegal immigrants using expensive emergency contracts with for-profit companies. Mayor Adams says the immigrant crisis will cost about $11 billion over the next two years and that the 2024 budget already has a $7 billion hole in it. City officials say the cuts will go into effect immediately. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden is meeting with Mexican President Lopez Obrador in San Francisco today. The two are meeting at the annual APEC conference. At core of their talks will be migration, fentanyl trafficking and Cuba relations. The meeting marks yet another in-person meeting between Biden and world leaders. Biden is expected to address the illegal migrant situation at the southern border, as well as the growing fentanyl trade in the U.S. On the topic of illegal immigration and money as a money as Southern California woman is in some hot water, she admitted to getting over a million dollars to help smuggle illegal immigration immigrants across the border. Yeah, she actually says she organized drivers to pick up the immigrants once they crossed the border and told drivers where to take them. The woman said in her plea agreement that one of her drivers took more than 75 people between October 2021 and April 2022. This is yet another case showing crime doesn't pay. She's now facing 10 years in federal prison. And before we take a short break here, we're going to get to some short headlines. Famous entertainer and entrepreneur Sean Diddy Combs has been accused of rape and assault by his former romantic partner Cassie Ventura. Other allegations say Combs encouraged Ventura to drink excessive amounts of alcohol and abuse drugs while forcing her to get illegal prescription medications for him. A lawyer for Combs says the entertainer denies the, quote, outrageous allegations. The Texas murder trial of professional cyclist Mariah Wilson ended with a guilty plea for Caitlin Armstrong yesterday. Wilson was found in an apartment with gunshot wounds. Prosecutors said came from a weapon belonging to Armstrong. Wilson briefly dated Armstrong's, briefly dated Armstrong's boyfriend. Prosecutors argued that Armstrong was fueled by romantic jealousy when she shot Wilson. It's not yet known when Miss Armstrong will be sentenced. 
Over 30 people were injured yesterday when a Chicago subway smashed into a snowplow. Nearly two dozen people were taken to the hospital, including three with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Four children were also among those injured. The snowplow was driving on the train track when hit by the two-car train. An investigation is now underway. And next, President Biden again highlighting differences between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist regime one day after calling the CCP leader a dictator. What he's saying as he seeks to boost ties with Indo-Pacific countries. And during a meeting between President Biden and Chinese regime leader, they spoke about China's plans for Taiwan. We take a closer look at the dangers of a Taiwan invasion when we come back. Thanks for staying with us. President Biden seeks to assure Asian Pacific allies that the U.S. is a more reliable trade partner than the Chinese Communist regime. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao brings us more from the APEC summit in San Francisco. As President Biden is seeking to deepen ties with Indo-Pacific economies right here at the APEC summit, he's again highlighting the fundamental differences that exist between the United States and the Chinese regime. Here is him addressing a CEO summit on Thursday. Watch. We have real differences with Beijing when it comes to maintaining fair and level economic playing field and protecting your intellectual property. We'll be firm standing up for our values and our interests. And President Biden asked that businesses as well as countries can count on the U.S. as a reliable and secure partner. And that echoes with Biden's calls for countries to rally behind the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is often seen as a more reliable alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And all this comes after President Biden said he'd raised human rights issues with the head of the CCP and also called him a dictator. Watch. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that, based on a former government, totally different than ours. And here in San Francisco, where the APEC summit is taking place, groups that are persecuted in China by the Chinese communist regime, including practitioners of the meditation practice Falun Gong, told us that they have this message for the Biden administration. They're taking innocent people, putting them in, in labor camps and torturing them for their beliefs. We can't stand for this. And the Biden administration should take action and, and, and speak strongly about this. The group's peaceful demonstrations are expected to last until the end of this summit. Back to you. During the recent meeting with President Biden, China's regime leader says Taiwan is the biggest issue in the U.S.-China ties. So let's bring in Greg Copley to zoom in on those talks. He's the president of the International Strategic Studies Association. Good morning, Greg. It's really good to have you. Now, first, um, I want to know about, because there were many mixed messages regarding Taiwan this time after the meeting, but she reportedly also said clearly that China was not readying for a Taiwan invasion. Apparently also uh, left the possibility open, though, that the use of force could be utilized. Now, I'm, I'm wondering from you, how do you interpret that? Well, I, uh, the, the reality is that the People's Republic of China is not yet ready militarily to invade Taiwan. So it's going to have to adopt other approaches to trying to constrain Taiwan in order to save Xi Jinping, because he has staked his career on 
recapturing or capturing rather uh, Taiwan and bringing it into the People's Republic of China. It was never part of the People's Republic of China before. So he's going to do something. Otherwise, his position within the Communist Party is finished. Uh, he has presided over the collapse of the economy. He has delivered nothing. Uh, and, he's, and it's all on the promise that Taiwan will somehow be brought into the communist family. And that's unlikely to happen through military means at this stage. So he will try something else, which could be a quarantining of the island uh, of Taiwan uh, in, in the near future, probably after the January elections in the, uh, in the, in the Republic of China, Taiwan. So that's an interesting time frame. Um, why do you say that? Because uh, he, he's waiting to see who might uh, become the next president. If the, if the DPP recaptures the presidency, uh, it looks as though he has failed to influence the people of, of Taiwan uh, because the DPP is regarded as hostile to the, concept, the One China concept. Whereas if the Kuomintang wins, he could hail that as some kind of victory uh, not which is, which is really not, but he needs something to save face. And the, the whole summit, in fact, in San Francisco was about saving Xi's face and image so that he doesn't look like a total failure uh, on the home market in, in, in mainland China. Hmm. Interesting take. So let's let's talk about those other approaches that you were mentioning a little bit later. But first, I want to know when, when Xi says um, there is a possibility that the use of force could be utilized. What could those conditions be when you're saying that right now, if I understand you correctly, that would rather do harm to the CCP? It, it would do harm to the CCP. Uh, if they tried anything right now, it would result in failure because the, the People's Liberation Army is not ready to, to undertake a military engagement with Taiwan, particularly as it would bring in Japan, the United States, Australia, and so on. So uh, what does she do? He is facing increasing unpopularity within the party, within the PLA, and within the public, of course, because of the impoverishment of the Chinese people. So uh, he has to do something. And it's all about his uh, survival. It's not about uh, a strategic necessity uh, so much for the People's Republic of China at this stage. It's about Xi's personal survival politically and, and in fact, uh, in, in life terms. Uh, because unless he does something or to restore his prestige, then it's likely that elements within the CCP, coupled with the PLA, will uh, sideline him within the near future. So the, the election in, in January in, in Taiwan is going to be critical to giving him some little hook mm. to say, I've, I've uh, achieved something or I've achieved nothing. Uh, so if, if, uh, if as is possible, the DPP is restored to power in the next presidential elections, then probably uh, Beijing would do something like a quarantining of Taiwan before uh, the, uh, the May swearing in of the, of the new president. Uh, so that's, that's uh, the timeline we're looking at. The question is, what is it he's going to do? And the quarantining could be uh, a very high-risk proposition because if he tries to cut off by land, by sea, and by air, uh, any communications into Taiwan and out of Taiwan, uh, he's risking escalation. Uh, we know that he has considered the uh, cutting off of uh, the undersea cable networks linking Taiwan with the outside world, and there are about eight or nine of those uh, with five landing stations, I think, on, on Taiwan. 
that again would be a high risk escalation. Uh, so they've, they've planned for various degrees of escalation, which would uh, hopefully, in his mind, uh, not get the PLA anxious to move against him. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's all now about the, how desperate Xi Jinping feels. Right. It's not about, uh, if you like, a classical necessity for a strategic military move by uh, by Beijing. Mm, interesting to keep an eye on that. And one more thing, just very quickly before we go, I want to touch on what uh, Biden was saying during the press conference, that the U.S. will maintain a one-China policy. Now, what exactly does that mean? Would that Does that sound like the U.S. is maybe taking a softer stance? And what would the reper repercussion be of that? It's verbally a softer stance, although it, is, it re reflects no change at all in Washington's policy. And the, the underlying, of course, Washington's policy is this concept of strategic ambiguity, uh, saying things which don't necessarily give you a clear idea of where they're going. Uh, in reality, even under the Biden administration, which has been very soft on Xi Jinping, uh, there has been a, uh, a great improvement in the military support for Taiwan. Uh, and that's, uh, that's occurring not just from the US, but also from Japan and, and other allies. So uh, basically, uh, both Xi and Biden have indicated no change at all in their intentions there. Uh, the US, however, is getting much more accustomed to the thought uh, and, uh, as to how it will link with the Republic of China, the Taiwanese armed forces, and reinforce them at, a, at critical times. Uh, so that message has, has been received loudly and clearly right. by the PLA. Uh, which, which does not want to risk this escalation at this time. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for your analysis and your insight on this. Greg Copley, I appreciate your time as always. Thank you very much. Heading to break, the Department of Education is investigating cases of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in schools and college campuses. And college campuses are becoming the focal point for a pro-Palestinian movement gaining traction as cases of anti-Semitism are on the rise. Stay with us. Good to have you back. Hate on college campuses in the wake of the October 7th Hamas terror attacks. The Department of Education has launched investigations into seven schools after complaints about alleged anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. The investigations include five anti-Semitism cases and two Islamophobia cases. The reports come from one K-12 school in Kansas and six colleges, including Cornell, Columbia and Cooper Union in New York. The Department of Education will make recommendations to the schools after the investigations. If they don't follow them, they could lose federal funding. The investigations were launched under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act which says universities and schools have to provide a discrimination-free environment. The BDS, or Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, is a Palestinian-led effort gaining traction on college campuses. I spoke to a Cornell law professor on the origins of the movement. Take a look. So the BDS movement actually started at the 2001 Durban conference, which was so anti-Semitic the U.S. walked out of it. They then launched a charade of a civil call from Palestinian society, but it was just a charade. It was the repackaging of the anti-Jewish boycotts as announced at the Durban anti-Semitic conference 
a conference so horrible that they were passing out gross caricatures of Jews at that conference. And they repackaged it because they realized it wasn't working. And they also were very savvy in understanding the approach that was gaining traction in West, on Western campuses and in Western society, the so-called social justice movement. So they essentially hijacked the social justice movement, repackaged the anti-Jewish boycotts, called it boycott, divestment, and sanctions. But the goal has been to drive the Jews out of the Jewish homeland, which is Israel. Mm. So the BDS website says this, that the BDS upholds a simple principle that Palestinians are entitled to the same rights as the rest of humanity. Now, it sounds like they're just fighting for equal rights of Palestinians. Do you think that there is maybe, um, or let's say maybe in modern times, there could be a chance of the disconnect between the means that they're using and what they're actually trying to achieve? Yeah, I don't think they believe that when they say that. We know what they mean when they see equal rights for Palestinians in Israel. First of all, Palestinians do have equal rights in Israel. If you're a citizen of Israel, if you're Arab Israeli, you have the same rights as Jews have. Unlike Muslim, many Muslim countries, where if you're not Muslim, you don't have the same rights. Uh, so first of all, within the state of Israel, Muslims and Palestinians have the same rights. Approximately 20% of the Israeli population self-identify as Arab Israelis. They mostly don't identify as Palestinians. Then you have the West Bank in Gaza, where Palestinians have rights under their own governments. I mean, the Palestinian Authority runs most of the West Bank. 90 plus percent of Palestinians in the West Bank live in areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority. And you hear a lot of people say, well, Palestinians don't have a right to vote, but Israeli Jews do. Well, they do have a right to vote. The problem is the Palestinian Authority refuses to hold elections. What should students be looking for? When is criticism on Israel anti-Semitism? Because there, is, there are Israelis that are criticizing their government. Criticism of Israel, similar in nature to what you would criticize other governments, is not anti-Semitic. And you're absolutely right that Many Israelis criticize their government. Many, many American Jews criticize the Israeli government. Many Americans criticize the US government. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it becomes demonization, when it becomes dehumanization, when you treat Israel differently than you treat other, other governments, specifically because it is Jewish, that is anti-Semitic. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing that Israeli Jews have been dehumanized. You have people denying that the massacres that Hamas committed, that they taped on GoPro cameras, that they boasted about, that they spread throughout the internet, all those things. You see people saying it never happened or the Israelis did it to themselves. That sort of criticism is anti-Semitic because you are treating Israelis not as you would treat other people, not as you would treat other governments. You're treating them as somehow uniquely evil in the world. So that is the distinction that I draw and that we should be drawing on campuses and elsewhere. Criticism of Israel is fine. Dehumanization of Israel is anti-Semitic. Coming up, online retail giant Amazon is looking to come into the auto sales market as a partner with automaker Hyundai. And imagine your daughter's desperate voice on the phone telling you she's been kidnapped, but that may not actually be your daughter and AI scams are surging. The Senate holds a hearing. Stay with us.
good to have you back. In our business news today, you can buy almost anything on Amazon and soon you'll be able to buy a car on the online shopping platform as well. One of the first cars that will be available for purchase next year is a Hyundai through an agreement with the South Korean automaker. So joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, buying a car on Amazon, tell us more. Yeah, of course. Uh, so th this vehicle launch uh, will be for next year, so it's going to be very soon. Uh, local car dealers can now actually show uh, their cars directly to customers uh, on the website. Uh, and uh, the first car is going to be a Hyundai, as Kevin uh, mentioned. Um, and of course, in typical Amazon fashion, the car can be delivered and, or you, know, you can pick it up as well at the dealership. Um, so the goal here is, you know, you know, from Amazon to make the experience as seamless as possible, you know, just like buying anything else on Amazon. Um, but in itself, uh, buying a vehicle online is not anything new. But the, the, the breakthrough here is that uh, dealers can uh, use the Amazon platform, which has millions of consumers. Uh, so that's a lot of exposure. Uh, so this is the real breakthrough here. And uh, it, it seems like uh, at this point, they're not talking to uh, other companies, but I'm sure they will in the future. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of potential here. Well, hopefully they're not going to try to deliver it by drone. <laughs> but uh, now most states do have laws that limit or ban the manufacturers themselves from selling the vehicles directly to consumers. So how's Amazon tackling that? Sure, uh, great question. So the end seller, uh, uh, of the vehicle is still going to be the dealer and Amazon is just performing the middleman role, uh, if you will, uh, in this whole process. Uh, Amazon's deal with Hyundai is sort of circumventing this issue that you uh, mentioned just now by making uh, dealers uh, an important part of the process here. And uh, of course, part of this process uh, will allow uh, consumers to choose a vehicle, configure them as well, calculate the price, and locate a dealer uh, to complete the sale. And I think this has some potential here because I don't know about you guys, because personally, when I'm looking to buy a little thing, sometimes I don't even go to physical stores anymore because you, you know you have to think about which store has the item. And once you're in the store, you have to think about which aisle. Uh, for example, uh, Home Depot, let's say. It's aisle after aisle after aisle, and you're just looking for this little thing. Uh, for me personally, uh, I would just type it in online and it gets delivered to my door. And I think a lot of people are in my cap as well. I don't think it's just myself. So I think uh, it has potential here. Saves a lot definitely of time. Definitely with you. Yeah, definitely with you. The simplicity of it all. But also, let's move on. And because I saw that Apple is announcing some big changes so to the iPhone, does that mean that Android users are finally able to use that blue bubble, text bubble with iPhone? Well, that's what we've been all waiting for, right? Uh, there's no blue text bubbles quite yet, but Apple announced plans to adopt a messaging standard that will bring iMessage features to Android users. Uh, the new standard will add features like red receipt, uh, typing indicators, better support for group chats and higher quality media sharing cross platforms. Apple plans to add uh, support for rich communication services later next year. Um, but you know, don't expect the blue or green bubbles to go away though. Uh, one analyst says uh, keeping the colors is an Apple marketing strategy that will likely continue. Mm, makes sense. Well, it's a step forward. It's a little too late for me though, because I already, I, uh, I left that club a while ago, the Android <laughs> club. <laughs> yeah, so Dan, do you have anything else for us? 
Um, yeah, sure. Uh, it seems like uh, some good news for consumers as well. Walmart CEO Doug McMillan says consumers could see lower prices in the coming weeks and months, with possibly Walmart entering a quote deflationary environment. So that's good news. It seems like McMillan says the U.S. food industry may be heading into a period of deflation after three years of price hikes. We'll wait and see on that. Food prices have increased 25% since the pandemic started. Well, yeah, that is good news that some of these grocery items prices are down a little bit. But the CFO of Walmart says that customers are still kind of waiting and shopping the sales, especially Black Friday and things like that. Well, I mean, uh, consumers' uh, wallets are uh, t are tight these uh, these days, so you know it makes sense they want to you know, take advantage of Black Friday and Cyber Monday coming up soon. That's right. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Thank you. Moving on, imagine hearing your daughter's desperate voice on the phone saying she's been kidnapped and needs you to pay a $50,000 ransom. But does she really? Creative AI scams like this are on the rise, stealing billions from terrified parents. And today's Jack Bradley has more. My phone rang. It was my son. He was crying. He said, Dad, I was in an accident. I hit another car being driven by a pregnant woman. My nose is broken. They arrested me. Jerry Shieldhorn was the intended victim of an AI phone scam. The scammers used generative artificial intelligence to clone his son's voice. They used the voice to make him think his son was in jail. The only way out? To have a mysterious public defender named Barry Goldstein help pay his bail. Mr. Goldstein, can you post the bond for my son? Yes. You need to wire me $9,000. A few minutes later, FaceTime call from my son. He's pointing to his nose. He goes, my nose is fine. I'm fine. You're being scammed. Shieldhorn's story is one of many presented at a Thursday hearing of the Senate Committee on Aging. The FTC estimates that older adults may have lost as much as $50 billion to scams in 2022. She repeated it again. Mom, mom, mom. And it was and sound exactly like her. So I answered the phone and it was my 15 year old daughter crying and sobbing, saying, mom, 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 help me. These bad men have me, help me, help me. Help. I heard sirens and my daughter's voice. And she said in a crying voice, mom, I got in an accident. These scams are usually meticulously designed to look as real as possible. Common red flag, scams usually involve sending a non-traceable payment. This is typically done through cryptocurrency transactions at crypto kiosks and through gift cards. One way to foil these scams is doing uh, a password among your friends and family and making sure that you're not publicizing that password or putting it in an email because hackers will be able to get access to that. But if somebody were to call you, you can say password authenticate. Tech expert Tom Romanoff says it's unlikely that scammers would know that password. If they can't provide it, that's a sign of a scam. It's very difficult for law enforcement to stop these scams. In fact, they may not even try. That moment of extreme horrific you know, terror probably shook Jennifer to her core. The police said there was nothing that they could do. No money was transferred. No crime, they said had been committed. Senator Mark Kelly believes this is a blind spot in the law. He's looking into potential legislation to target these types of scammers. Jack Bradley, NTD News. 
Well, listen, another chapter in the book of dangers of AI, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've seen the deep fake scams and everything. And now this, and that was a good possibility to prevent this is the password authentication. You could just have a conversation with them, say, hey, what was the name of our first dog? And then when the AI can't figure it out, you know, okay, this is a scam. There you go. Got to be vigilant. Good idea. Yeah. Um, we're heading to a quick break now, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's a tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning and welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. Former President Trump keeps a firm hold on his lead in New Hampshire. It's who's polling in second that might surprise you. New Hampshire defies Biden and the DNC by setting a January 23rd date for their primary election, making it the first in the nation. A political strategist tells us why and how this will affect the Democratic primary. Three GOP presidential hopefuls will meet for a family discussion on politics. Is former President Trump expected to attend? Terrorist indoctrination taught in UN-funded schools with teachers praising the October 7th attacks. We asked the executive director of UN Watch who says American taxpayers are paying for it. A pro-Palestine student group and the ACLU are suing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the University of Florida. The group alleges infringement on their First Amendment rights. Scaling a mountain is an incredible feat. Hear this young climber's story of climbing one of Greece's tallest mountains when he was only seven. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Friday, finally, November 15th, and we're starting off with some election updates. Former President Trump is holding on to a significant lead in New Hampshire among likely GOP voters. South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley gained ground over her rivals, moving into second place in a new poll. The poll was conducted by CNN and the University of New Hampshire this week. It has Trump coming in at 42% of the vote. Haley had 20%. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie came in third above DeSantis. Although 47% of the likely GOP voters polled said they would never support him. Haley's support climbed 8% since the last CNN UNH poll and September with Ramaswamy dropping by 5%. The likely Republican voters polled ranked Trump highly on his policy, decision making and integrity. 
And more in the primary election that's coming up. New Hampshire has set January 23rd as their presidential primary date. The move is in opposition to Biden's order, which sees South Carolina as the first primary in the nation instead of the Granite State. To learn more about this, we're bringing in Raven Harrison, a political strategist and former congressional candidate. Raven, good morning to you. Why did New Hampshire defy the DNC here? Well, good morning to you as well. I think New Hampshire defied it because contractually and structurally they have an agreement that they are supposed to be the first, that they are the kickoff, just what Iowa caucuses is to presidential debates and the whole political scene is what New Hampshire is to the DNC. So I think they were just forcing the DNC to honor their agreement to make New Hampshire first. They're supposed to be the first one and they have been up until this year. So why does the DNC want South Carolina to have the first Democrat primary? I think there's a fracture among the DNC with this. I think the initial, the, the old school DNC wants to keep things the way they were. The new uh, wave, which is being spearheaded by Biden, is trying to capture more of the African-American vote. And they're trying to pull in a broader base because they're hemorrhaging voters in certain uh, demographics. So that is... Uh, widely believe the move of trying to move it to South Carolina is to try to to cast a bigger net and swing a bit more in going uh, momentum in going into these uh, primaries. So is New Hampshire's move here going to affect the primary election for Biden at all? Well, there's a couple of things that might affect it. This might be one, the jostling. New Hampshire has managed to get it back on track to set the date so that they are technically the first. So we'll see if that matters among the would-be voters. But we've also got some jostling that's been happening in terms of the speculation growing about Gavin Newsom coming up behind the scenes uh, to, to be inserted for Biden. So we've got a few things in play that could either energize or distract from the party. That is interesting. So Biden's name is not going to be on the Democratic primary ballot in New Hampshire, but it doesn't seem like there are any contenders that would give him a run for his money, making this basically moot, would you say? Correct. I think that right now they're they're pretty content to say, hey, we're going to have we're going to write him in, you know, for him not being in there. But I think it's part of a larger strategy that they're trying to right now keep everything stitched up and tight going into their momentum starter. So where did this all start, this whole rift between New Hampshire and the DNC? I think the rift is starting because there are some policies. You've got some top-level strategies that are coming from the White House on how we retain the, um, the voters that we are losing. And also, we've got all of this conflict that's going on right now that, that has to do with uh, Israel and Jewish aid, and that's a huge voting block. Traditionally, 68% or more of the Jewish population votes for Democrats. So you've got some kind of uh, strategies going and working with multiple wheels going in the same direction. So I think that's what started the rift, and that's what they're trying to do now is to make sure they don't lose any more of the base going into their kickoff. Is New Hampshire's decision to become the first in the nation primary, once again, going to affect the general election at all? I think it might among the established and the old school DNC voters, um, the ones who they're trying to pull in, likely not. But the fact that it's contractually, a lot of people don't realize this is in New Hampshire's contract with the DNC that they are the first. So they really had the out in terms of demanding that they remain first and keep that, that significance in politics as being the first and the kickoff. What well, is great hearing your analysis, Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate. Thank you. Thank you.
Three GOP presidential hopefuls will meet in Iowa today for what's billed as a family discussion. Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will take part in the Des Moines roundtable discussion. Former President Trump was also invited but is not expected to attend the event. The host of the discussion is a conservative organization called the Family Leader. It emphasized the event isn't a debate after the RNC Council sent a letter warning candidates that attendance would disqualify them from future RNC debates. After DeSantis committed to attending anyway, the moderator of the event, Bob Vanderplatz, said the RNC issued a second letter. It said an agreement was made on the event format and it could proceed as planned. Vanderplatz said the forum, forum will give Iowans a chance to see what's in the candidates' hearts, not just their plans. And a pro-Palestine student group and the ACLU are suing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the University of Florida, this over alleged violation of the group's First Amendment rights. A curriculum of hate being taught in UN schools as teachers at that and teachers that praise the October 7th terrorist attacks. We talked to the executive director of UN Watch, who says American taxpayers are paying for it. A young British climber defies all odds and scales one of the tallest mountains in Greece. Stay tuned to hear more about his incredible ascension. Turning now to updates from the Israel-Hamas war. Israeli troops are preparing for the next phase of their ground operations in Gaza while they've found the body of another hostage. Israel says the body of a second Israeli hostage was found near Al-Shifa Hospital today. She's been identified as 19-year-old Noah Marciano, a corporal in the Israel Defense Forces. Israel's military says her body has been transferred to Israeli territory the IDF said yesterday it found the body of a 65-year-old Israeli woman who was kidnapped. There are signals that Israel's ground operation is about to expand in the south. Palestinians in parts of the southern Gaza said they received evacuation notices Thursday. And multiple schools and teachers glorifying terrorism, endorsing violence and praising mar martyrdom. Those were the findings of a joint report on UNRWA schools, the UN-funded schools for Palestinian refugees. UNRWA teachers and staff were also documented demonizing Israelis, promoting anti-Semitism, and denying Israel's existence. Some even praised the October 7th terrorist attacks. NTD spoke with the executive director of UN Watch, who says American taxpayers pay for this. The 2023 Joint Report on UNRWA School Indoctrination comes from UN Watch and the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance in School Education. It identified well over 100 UNRWA teachers and staff that promote hate and violence on social media. The report was presented to Congress last week as it considers bills to eliminate funding for the agency. It was submitted to the UN with no answer yet. We've not seen any uh, action, anyone fired. These are teachers who glorified one of the worst atrocities of our time, a mass terrorist attack. Hillel Neuer, executive director of UN Watch, told NTD that U.S. taxpayers are paying them. They called them heroes, the murderers. They called them princes, said it's a glorious day, and we're paying for it. 
Now I'm living in Switzerland, I'm Canadian, both those countries, Canada and Switzerland, give money to UNRWA. The United States is giving well over $300 million a year to UNRWA. The American taxpayer is paying for teachers who are celebrating the murder of Jews. Former President Trump cut all U.S. funding for UNRWA in 2018. The State Department called it an irredeemably flawed operation after reviewing the agency's business model and practices. The Biden administration brought funding with conditions back in 2021. If a teacher in the United States at a public school were found to be glorifying Hitler and celebrating the mass murder of anyone, that teacher would be fired immediately, would never go before a classroom again. Why is it that Palestinian children are denied their basic human rights and the United Nations is knowingly employing teachers who are indoctrinating Palestinian children, the next generation, if you will, to become Hamas murderers. That's what the UN is doing. Newer says it's a violation of the UN's guarantee and its founding charter to treat all nations equally. He says the double standard and focus on Israel takes attention off other countries' issues that need to be addressed. The UN never addressed the persecution of the Uyghurs. China is immune, has never been criticized by the General Assembly. If we speak of the Human Rights Council, as you mentioned, China is a member. The Islamic Republic of Iran, which beats, blinds, tortures uh, women for the crime of protesting. They were made the chair of a UN Human Rights Forum recently. Uh, these are breaches of the UN's founding principles, which are supposed to protect human rights. It's absurd. And regular people around the world are losing credibility in the UN when they spend all their time demonizing the Jewish state and giving a free pass to the world's worst dictatorships. Neuer says decent countries need to do the right thing and speak out. The fact that Cuba got 146 votes to be elected to the Human Rights Council is absurd. The fact that the Islamic Republic of Iran was made the chair of this UN Human Rights Forum just two weeks ago and no one said anything. I mean, the US made a statement, but that was it. The European Union said nothing. Uh, that's shameful. So our democracies, they won't always win the votes, but they have to fight back. They have to speak out. They have to go on the record and defend the principles of democracy and human rights. And we're not seeing that. We're seeing a lot of political cowardice. And that's why the dictators are winning the day at the UN. Back to the U.S., a pro-Palestine student group and the ACLU are initiating a lawsuit in Florida. The announcement came yesterday when the ACLU posted on X that it will be suing the University of Florida system and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This over alleged violation of the group's First Amendment rights. It came in response to DeSantis's order to deactivate the group for a statement made by the Associated Group Students for Justice in Palestine. The lawsuit challenges an order issued by the head of the university after DeSantis instructed the facility to strip the group of its official recognition. The ACLU argues that any separate association with independent national organizations should not serve as grounds for punishment. According to Florida state law, speech conducted in coordination with or at the direction of a designated foreign terrorist organization is excluded from the First Amendment. DeSantis has likened members of the SJP organization as being part of or in support of the Hamas terrorist group. He said he's proud of his actions in regards to the group's deactivation across the Florida University system. A pro-Palestine protester has been arrested. He's charged in the death of a Jewish man who died after an altercation in California. And today's Christina Corona has more on the story. 
The Ventura County Sheriff's Office arrested 50-year-old Loe Alnalgi Thursday in connection with the death of Paul Kessler following an altercation at dueling protests in Thousand Oaks. Alnalgi, a computer science professor at Ventura County Community College, has been charged with involuntary manslaughter and he is held on a $1 million bail. According to authorities, Kessler, 69, died as a result of injuries he sustained from a pro-Palestinian demonstration demonstrator wielding a megaphone at the November 5th rally. Video footage shows Kessler lying on the ground suffering from a head wound. He was transported to a hospital where he died the next day. The arrest follows initial uncertainty about whether the incident constituted a hate crime. Officials said that though an arrest was made, anyone with information or who attended the event should still come forward and share video footage with the Ventura County Sheriff's Office. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Yesterday on San Francisco's Bay Bridge, pro-Palestinian protesters brought traffic to a standstill for hours during rush hour. 80 people were arrested and 29 cars towed off the bridge. That's when President Biden attended the APEC summit nearby. This follows a recent incident outside the DNC headquarters in Washington that turned violent. The protesters at certain points blocked the exits where at least 10 Democratic lawmakers, including top party leaders, were inside at the time. They had no way out and had to be evacuated. The U.S. Capitol Police stated the demonstration in front of the DNC was unlawful and that protesters punched and pepper sprayed officers, injuring six. Representative Becca Balint came the, became the first Jewish member of the House of Representatives to call for a ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas. Balint said she is grieving deeply for the Israelis killed in the initial attack and the hostages taken by Hamas, as well as the Palestinians killed and suffering in the chaos of violence. Balint shared her thoughts in an op-ed published by VT Digger. She said, what's needed now is an immediate break in violence to allow for a true negotiated ceasefire. According to The Hill, her published opinion makes her the first Jewish representative calling for a ceasefire. The congresswoman also wrote that a lasting ceasefire can only work if Hamas does not rule in Gaza. She emphasized that Hamas is a terrorist organization with a goal to annihilate the state of Israel. Earlier this week, 24 House members sent a letter to the Biden administration calling for a ceasefire. Bellant was not one of the lawmakers who signed that letter. We want to now turn to some lighter news. A young British boy has climbed to the top of the nearly 10,000-foot-tall Mount Olympus at the age of seven. He's the youngest boy from Britain to ever reach the peak of the famous mountain in Greece. Here's more on his incredible accomplishment. At the age of seven, most of us were playing outside, riding our bikes, or watching movies and television. But not Frankie McMillan, who recently became the youngest British boy to scale Mount Olympus in Greece. His interest in mountain climbing dates back to age three, when he began climbing with his mother, a professional mountain guide. Well, I was always climbing mountains. First, it was a hobby for me, but um, then it turned into the job. But um. Frankie was always watching me walking up the mountains and um, started asking me to take him with, uh, with me. So uh, one, of, uh, one of the days when he was free, I took Frankie up the mountain. I honestly thought that we would probably 
turn back halfway, but he just did it. He smashed it. He, he started very well. He finished very well. And then he asked for more. His mom makes sure climbing doesn't become a difficult chore. She makes it a fun bonding experience for the both of them. We play games, we sing songs, we find treasure. So the day flows and we just have um, just loads of fun. We spend time together, we make jokes, we make up songs and all these things just let us get to know each other better and have fun as well and see the world. He's a boy who doesn't lack motivation, according to his mom. It's very rare for him not being driven to do something. Um, it's very rare. I have to encourage him. Usually it's Frankie who will say, come on, let's go, let's do it. And he's learning so much more than just mountain climbing skills. It just gives him skills for life, life as well. So it's resilience. It's not giving up. It's staying strong. Keep going no matter what life throws at you. Frankie has been inspiring classmates and people worldwide, and he's far from finished. He plans to make even more challenging climbs, including Mount Everest. But for now, he's keeping his next adventure a secret. Well, so we have a long list, and the next one's going to be big, but we don't want to give it away just yet, but we will soon. That's awesome. Mountain climbing's hard. Yeah, and especially because that air gets really thin when you get up there. That's right, yeah. And um, anyway, I, I, that's incredible. All these tips online on how to get kids to uh, hike with the parents. And meanwhile, this guy is dragging the, his parents on hikes. That's yeah. awesome. I well, mean, Mount Olympus, that's almost two miles straight up. Yeah, that's intense. I know I used to be really miserable on hikes. All right, but we have to wrap up our show right here. We'll keep you updated, though, with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.